to Elevate Louisiana Engage podcast. Elevate Louisiana was founded earlier this year to empower women leaders throughout Louisiana by connecting and educating them on the challenges impacting our state with data-driven, nonpartisan solutions to make a better future for Louisiana. Hello, I'm your host, Julie Stokes, and today we're recording our first in a four-part series on the state of higher education in Louisiana. These four video casts that we are recording are a prologue to an interactive webinar on August 28th between the members of Elevate Louisiana and our four speakers. Elevate's August 28th webinar will be a forum where our members will discuss higher education policies with the policymakers in Louisiana so that our civic leaders can get more engaged in making a better Louisiana. Our guest today is Dr. Jim Henderson, president of the University of Louisiana System. Since his appointment to that post in 2017, he has led the universities of Louisiana in the creation of a strategic framework that charges its universities to produce the most educated generation in Louisiana's history, drive growth through public-private partnerships and research, and recruit, retain, and develop world-class faculty who educate students, empower employers, and enrich communities. Welcome, Dr. Henderson. Hey, Julie, it's great to see you. Thank you for the, for the opportunity. Great to see you too, and I love those goals. Yeah. Dr. Henderson, that sounds so good. You know, I've enjoyed watching your career as you ascended to this position from Northwestern State University in Natchitoches, Louisiana, where you served as president. And I've had the opportunity to visit you up there, and uh, what a great place to visit oh. and eat one of those famous meat pies. Yeah, at Lazion's, and what a, it's a beautiful community, the city of Natchitoches. Of course, it's historic, and, and I think uh, it's one of the most beautiful college campuses in the country. A lot of people don't realize this, it's the oldest permanently dedicated site to higher education in the state of Louisiana. So it's it's been on that site longer than, uh, than even our flagship has been here in Baton Rouge or or any other, and uh, was was honored to be president of Alma Mater, and then to come here and do systemic work has has been a great pleasure as well. Yeah, well, I, I will say uh, the fun of a Northwestern football game hey. is really unmatched in character and community. I, I got to say, I had such a blast when I spent a day there, yeah, and uh, and I've also you've got to love the war cry, right? Yes, that's right. War Spoke demons. demons. Forkham Demons. Demons. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, great, great, great community, great spirit, you know, tremendous. And the, the, the School of Creative and Performing Arts there is something that people don't realize just how strong it is. There's a very prominent private school in Texas that has a good creative and performing arts school. When they find out that one of their students might visit Northwestern State, they automatically up their scholarship offer just to keep them from even visiting. It's, it's that impressive. Oh, that's great. Well, and it's a great little town. I tell you, I could picture, I could picture retiring there. I really could. It's just yeah. pretty. Beautiful. So, Dr. Henderson, uh, we're living in a world right now that's predominated by a global pandemic. Um, <laughs> we cannot seem, we cannot seem to escape it, um, no matter what we do. But how have the universities of Louisiana shifted operations, you know, to suit these times? And what's the plan for the fall semester? Well, you know, I. I have to go back to March 9th of this year, which was uh, uh, the first day of the legislative session. It was, I had all nine university presidents here in my office on, the, on our big uh, uh, couch. And uh, we were planning to talk about legislative strategy. 
But over the weekend, we had all become amateur epidemiologists and realized that uh, for the foreseeable future, we were going to be talking about COVID-19. But even on that date, we had no idea just how uh, disruptive this would be. A week later, we made the announcement that we were moving 92,000 students from traditional college settings into a virtual college setting. Uh, the Herculean lift performed by our faculty and our staff and, of course, our presidents is something I won't, I won't forget. Uh, they successfully re-engaged more than 96% of those students in an online learning environment. It doesn't mean they were all successful or as successful as they could have been. And it doesn't mean we didn't identify a lot of gaps and a lot of learning opportunities. Uh, but just the effort itself to re-engage these students was phenomenal. And we graduated uh, just this spring semester, almost 10,000 students who are ready for life and career success. But going forward, we're planning to reopen in the fall. Uh, in a format that will look uh, not like it did fall of 2019, but it'll also look decidedly different than it did spring of 2020. I think we learned a lot. We learned how to, uh, uh, to engage students at a deeper level, how to uh, provide safe environments for our faculty and for students. And we're really approaching it with four key principles and they're hierarchical. So first is the health and safety of students, faculty and staff is paramount that nothing else matters, everything follows, follows from that. Second is we understand how important it is to uh, continue the learning process, to continue developing talent. It's important for the students themselves and for our employers. Third, we understand that there is a financial consideration for our universities. These universities are an economic driver. As a system, we contribute $10.9 billion to the economy of the state of Louisiana. It's important that we reopen as long as we can do uh, that first priority of health and safety. And fourth uh, is, is more of a global ambiguous uh, uh, rationale, if you will. And that's the, that's the sociological health, the societal health of our communities. Being locked down is not a good place to be. You know, and we, we've got to, as a citizenry, find ways to re-engage in whatever that new normal is. And I think our universities can play a key role in that. Yeah, well, you know, and I think about all the time for me, uh, for social distancing, working out of the house, it's been great for me. <laughs> but the reason that it's been great for me is because I've got a 16 year old and an 18 year old. Oh, and I mean, after seven or eight years of running around being an elected person and being out all the time, I've really gotten to hunker down with these kids before they go off to college, you know, oh, uh, but yeah. Yeah, that, that was great. I will tell you this, after about uh, the first three weeks of me being home, my wife was saying, you know, isn't there something you can do, a space suit, something you can wear and go <laughs> back to your office? Uh, but, but yeah, for the most part, for, for this, 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 the, the sociologically uh, uh, mature and adapt, adaptable people, it worked well. It's us introverts. We well, kind of needed to get away. Well, I'll tell you, though, if I, if I didn't have kids, or God forbid, if I was a single person, a college student, a high school student, older person that, you know, didn't have people at home, it would be crippling. So I really understand it. I, I really do. And the other question I want to ask you on with regard to that is um, internet. You know, we talk a lot about internet equity and how do you get that distance learning? How do you achieve internet equity for all of your students? I know a lot of which have to be from rural communities, huh? So we have a lot of students that come from rural communities and, and the, the buzzword now is, is the digital divide and people talk about it. 
Uh, I'm not one who's a big fan of those buzzwords because they start, you start to become numb to them. But what the digital divide is, is that we realize there are large segments of our population that don't have access to, uh, uh, to Wi-Fi or to, or to any kind of, of, of uh, digital transmission of data that's reliable and that's fast enough to do the things that we need to do in a learning environment. So you see students that have to drive to uh, their local library, which is not open, but hopefully they can get access to Wi-Fi or to a college campus or to a McDonald's or, or you know, whatever fast food restaurant has, has Wi-Fi. Uh, and even that is sporadic when you get to rural parts of Louisiana. Think about the, the northeast, the Delta, or even that 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 western part of Louisiana, right there on the, uh, the 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 banks of Toledo Bend, and then coming back eastward into the state. Huge deserts in terms of of digital access, data access, uh, and 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 so you know I I drive all over the state all the time. I can tell you mile markers where you can't even get cellular data. Uh, and, and that's when you, you schedule your call about a mile before you get to mile 46 <laughs> for that person you don't really want to talk to, you know, so you, <laughs> I don't remember that 46, <laughs> yeah, but, it's, but it's a big, it's, it's a big concern for us. And, 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 and I think we're, we're taking steps to fix it. It will not be fixed in time for this fall. And that's another reason why it's important that we find safe ways to bring students back to our campuses or back to a learning environment where they can access an education. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, having to go sit at a business the whole time you do your homework huh. is less than ideal. That's right. Um, so, um, okay, so for the fall, though, the way it's anticipated right now is that kids will come back, they will stay in their dorms. That's right. And, and, and go to school. And, that's right. And people sometimes don't realize it's really a small number of students that stay in dorms. It's about 25% of our student population is in dormitories. Uh, and and so we'll, we we're taking steps to ensure that the dorm space is is conducive to, to healthy learning, that we have a place for students that live in dorms in the event of an outbreak, so that we can put them in a place where they're they're isolated and, or quarantined as the as the situation uh, warrants. Uh, but the vast majority of our students are coming from communities, and we want to ensure that we're uh, we're able to adapt and respond when uh, uh, an outbreak occurs in, in that location as well. But at the same time, accommodating those students and those faculty and staff that come from vulnerable populations. We know if you're over age 60, we know if you have hypertension or diabetes or uh, uh, an issue that, that started to plague a lot of us during the break, obesity. <laughs> it started to rear its ugly head in my house. <clears throat> the COVID-19? That's right, the COVID-19, <laughs> that's right. Uh, those comorbidities, you know, we want to ensure that we're accommodating them uh, uh, to the greatest extent possible, because uh, uh, return to normal is easier for some parts of the population than for others. And, and, and that age component, that's the one that jumps out at me. You know, I think those 65 plus in Louisiana account for uh, something like 13% of the cases, but two thirds of the fatalities. And that's just, it's a staggering number. And we need to ensure that we're taking care of those populations as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, on to a different subject. Sure. Um, I, I've heard you speak about your program, Compete Louis, Compete LA, I think you call it instead of Louisiana, Compete LA, uh, an initiative for returning students, um, which I think we have so many, so much, uh, a cornucopia of people that we can pull back into our school systems. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so we've realized that if we're going to create this most educated generation, as we call it, uh, uh, we needed to address those students that 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 were not 
reaching right now. It's, 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 a, it's a traditional marketing approach, if you will, from a business perspective. You know, where's that blue ocean that you can go out where there's a, a consumer base or a market that's not being addressed? And there's 653,000 adults in Louisiana that have some college but no degree. And you think about how does that happen? Well, why, why does someone come to college and then not finish their degree? And it can be a lot of things. It can be, you know, an illness. It could be a financial problem. Uh, I, sometimes babies happen in college. We're, we're still researching the causal <laughs> factors of that. Uh, sometimes it's a positive thing. Sometimes it's a job opportunity. And I think, you know, in, in Northwest Louisiana, when the Haynesville Shale uh, was discovered and, and, and you were leasing property at 25 to $31,000 an acre. Uh, natural gas was at $14 an MCF. It led to a lot of job opportunities for someone. You know what? They're very attractive. They're lucrative. So that student leaves school, goes and begins working. Well, guess what? Natural gas plummets to $3 an MCF. And that company picks up its roots and it moves to Texas or to the Dakotas. And all of a sudden this student now has a car payment and a trailer payment and a boat payment. Going back to school is just not part of their, their plan. They've got to work. Sometimes they've got a family now to support. So we created Compete Louisiana. It's this concierge service designed to knock down all of the barriers, cut through all the red tape associated with going back to school so that you can protect, that you can enjoy that most precious commodity that you have, which is time. And we can use that coach to get you on a path to graduation. They stay with you from the minute you express interest to the minute you walk across that stage and help you even in the, in the labor exchange so you can move up in, into your job. We think it is going to be the driver of change in Louisiana, make us more competitive as an economy and certainly more competitive as individuals. How does people, how does somebody uh, sign up for this? How do they go about finding this online or by phone? So you can go to the ulsystem.edu webpage or competela.org. Uh, you can download the Compete LA app from both the Android store and the, and the app store. Uh, it puts you uh, immediately in, in contact with a coach. And listen, this is the great thing. You know, technology is driving the demand for a more educated workforce, but it's also enabling us to reach people at, a, at, at scale much easier. So we've got an artificial intelligence engine running in the background. We have analyzed every question that's ever been asked of us about coming back to school. And so we anticipate your questions and we know the answer. So while we couldn't possibly serve 653,000 adults individually with a coach immediately, we've already answered your question. So we've got a computer that's gonna give you that answer in a way that you'll, you won't know if it's your best friend or if it's us or who it is. It doesn't take away the personalization because that's you're going to be with a personal coach. But at the same time, we're able to scale up our operation and serve you immediately. And that's the most, that's the hardest thing for people to give, is, to give up is the time associated with coming back to college. Yeah, but I typically think that a lot of returning students in their adulthood have matured and they're ready to, to they're not ready to fail a class. As, as they would say, ain't nobody got time for that. No, listen, they, they're the best students we have. They don't skip class. They're very serious about getting their work done because they're, they're, they're goal-driven. They understand this is my path to where I want to be. And uh, right. so we're serious about the work. Yeah, so uh, there was some, there was a flat rate tuition that went with this or? So, so this May we decided that was the other piece, the other precious commodity is resources. So we uh, uh, created a flat rate tuition, it's $275 per credit hour, that's all in. Uh, there's no fees associated with that, that's, that's it. 
uh, it is an extraordinarily, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's priced in a way that it, it makes the, the program more attractive than some others you might hear on your Sirius XM radio or your or, or television that's constantly advertising. Uh, you can go to your school, the school you know and love, the one that's in your community, the one that has an alumni base in your community, and you can do it at a rate that is less expensive than many competitors that offer other 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 avenues. So we think that $275 a credit hour uh, will make it, uh, number one, not complex to figure out how much it costs, but two, lower that total cost of completing your degree. Well, that that's really great. And so this, just to clarify, this is for people returning for a bachelor's degree or does it apply for a master's or is it just this, bachelor's? Yeah, this is for, this is for those that have, uh, have some college, but no degree, so no bachelor's degree uh, who have been out of school for at least two years. Uh, so it's a very specific population, uh, uh, for master's degrees, those cost a little bit more, uh, but the vast majority Fine. of these, <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'll work with you, we'll work with you. We'll find an avenue. And listen, you know, master's degrees are becoming much more, uh, uh, attractive in the marketplace as well. You know, we have a number of employers that understand that that uh, the what to do and the how to do things is is easy. It's the how to think. It's the critical thinking, the problem solving, the effective communications that come with a college education that that give you a competitive advantage in the marketplace because that's what employers need, right? Yeah. Technology, artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation, uh, they can do the work but they can't do those human things that are so, uh, that we'll never figure out how to replace the humanity. Uh, as we hope not. Developed humans, right? We hope not, right? <laughs> <laughs> if Elon Musk has his way, you know, we'll all have computers embedded in our heads. And, yeah. Uh, well, I always thought if I could have Google Glass and it would tell me who I was looking at every time I Just the name. Had Give me the name me. right here. It'd exactly. Be Amazing. So, uh, and that... <laughs> That is a great uh, treadway uh, into the next thing that we thought about talking about, which was the future of work. Yeah. Um, the world's moving so fast and technology, it's amazing to be alive in this time. You know, I always thought about when you look back at people that were alive during the industrial revolution, you thought, what would it be like to be alive during such a big change and the way things were done? And, and here we are, right so, in the middle you know, of it. Julie, in the early 19th century, uh, the Luddites were trained artisans, right? And they became so uh, afraid of technology, they started destroying factories and destroying machinery because they thought that they would be replaced by low-skilled, low-wage workers. This is the early 19th century, early 1800s. Uh, the mid-30s, uh, John Maynard Keynes was talking about technological unemployment, that technology was advancing so quickly that uh, that we would see massive shifts uh, or massive reduction in employment of humans because they'd be replaced by machines. So this is not a new concept, right? What's happening, what's different this time is in the past, every time we have seen an increase in the rate of technology, we reach a plateau, right? And then we have time to catch up and the market catches up. Because of artificial intelligence, that line is now a curve. So it's an exponential rate of growth and it never, approaches true vertical, but it gets close. True vertical is what we call the singularity, right? And that's the really <laughs> scary Star Trek, Star Wars, Star Trek stuff. But it gets close to that. As a result of that, um, uh, OECD has, has estimated that 47% of the tasks currently done in the United States could be automated by the year 2030. 
47%. But here's the key. It's not the job that's automated, it's the task. And so if you think about that, if you think about it from that perspective, if you're able then to add another level of value beyond the task itself, you become much more productive and much more attractive to that employer. And you think about the, the work of an administrative assistant. You know, we're just 15 years ago, my administrative assistant, her main job was to type in the names off of business cards into my Rolodex, right? Yeah. How much time do you think the, the administrative assistants do with that now? They don't. They're making critical decisions and communicating. And, and mine is making decisions that affect 92,000 students in a $1.3 billion enterprise. So you, the skill set associated with that job has changed because the tasks have become so much more complex. It's an exciting world to me, even though yeah. all this kind of change can be scary to many. Well, well absolutely. Um, you know, and I like what you say, though. It's automation of tasks. That's right. And not right. automation of the human mind or, you know, reaching the singularity, which, you know, well, God <laughs> forbid. But, you know, you think about that in terms of drivers, you yeah. know, delivery drivers, 18-wheelers, just, you know, there's so much automation possible there. Um, another statistic that I had heard was that 47%, ironically, the same percentage, which is kind of what made me think about it, but 47% of the working people that work in an office after this COVID experience don't want to go back to an office. Yeah. And that's not counting the 25% that said, I don't want to go back to an office if COVID's a threat. These 47 were like, I'd kind of prefer to work from home forever. Um, that's going to change the future of work too, I think, and just what it looks like. But I think also it's, it's, it's forced employers to understand, you know what, maybe, maybe there's a business rationale for me allowing that to happen. Maybe not forcing people to come up to the job, working in a cubicle, uh, uh, is, is as necessary as I once thought it was. You know, we, yeah. you, you know, time clocks were huge. Now it's less about the time you worked and more about the production that you're mm -hmm. capable of. And, 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 you know, I found, you know, our staff uh, at the system office, a lot of them are, 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 are working remotely. Most of them are still working remotely, but the productivity hasn't dropped off. They're still able to function. Right. We're able to communicate very effectively. Uh, Zoom calls like, you know, the Zoom that we're doing right now have become uh, so easy uh, to, to do. They're, 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 you know, there's, there's always some kinks to work out, but uh, we're learning that a remote workforce is, 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 is absolutely fine and maybe preferable to bringing everybody together all the time. Now, I don't think it's, it's a panacea. I do think that there's some, some benefits to having people in the same room uh, because you can read body language, you can do these kinds of things. Uh, but I do think we've learned to, to use remote learning. But, you know, you mentioned cars, and I do have to mention this part of it. There's an evolution associated with this. So for about four years now, the, the vehicles that I drive have lane keep assist and yeah. uh, uh, speed sensitive cruise control. So they, they see the car in front of me. If I drive a car that doesn't have those two things, I am a, a danger on the roadway <laughs> because I've already lost the ability to keep my car on the road because I expect my car to do it on its own. Mm -hmm. Listen, that stuff is happening so quickly and we, we adapt and we evolve to it sometimes without even realizing it. But think about the implications of that, the lower cost of insurance that will come with that. We can do tort reform, fine, but let's make cars safer which we're doing. Let's make, yeah. let's make it idiot proof for a driver. All of a sudden uh, you just it, it elevated the, the, uh, uh, the quality of life and, and productivity because now when those people that text and drive are able to do it, 
because the car's driving instead of because they're just. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and I, you know, in my opinion, what I see after serving in a legislature is that it will not be the fact that driverless technology can't operate. It will be the legislatures <laughs> that will have to hold it back because of the severe fear of the disruption to the economy. Because, I mean, if you take, I mean, you talked about insurance. Well, who do you insure, the person or the car? Who do you insure? I mean, it, you, you, it, it, it would be an extremely disruptive thing and one that I hope that we can clear up all those hurdles by the time I enter into old age and my kids are ready to take my car keys away. Oh, right. I'm really pulling for it to be there. But um, I guess, you know, I'd like to look at in terms of what we were just talking about is what are the next class of jobs? Like, what are the jobs that higher education needs to be looking at right now? So we're focused on um, less about the jobs and more about the core capabilities that will prepare you for whatever those jobs are, mm. right? And we know what those are. It's critical thinking, it's problem solving, it's effective communication, it's digital literacy. In 2004, uh, less than 5% of jobs were considered high digital. Today, it's more than one out of four is considered high digital. That's, that's a 16-year change that we've seen that happen. Uh, so we know those are the core competencies, but there's some others. Cultural competence. Listen, because of technology, we now can work with a, a truly global workforce. And so you're working with people that come from different backgrounds, that have different perspectives, different belief systems, if you will. And so having the cultural competence to work with people that might come from a different value system than you do is, is something that's a lucrative capability that, that the employers are looking for. Uh, the ability to work as part of a team. You know, uh, and, and I like it. I, I mentioned, I visited with a technology firm that was in New Orleans. They said, you know what, we want to talk to your computer science graduates, but we also want to talk to your music majors. I thought about, well, why? And then you think about what does a music major do? Well, they have to train, they have to work as part of a team, but they've got mutual accountability. So you not only have to be in tune with the person on your right and your left, but the person across the orchestra pit from you. And if any one of you falls short, the entire organization fails. Yeah. So think about the capability that that develops in that person and how that person could be a valuable addition to a technology company. Wow. I mean, so it was, it was like a, a, a light bulb went off in my head. That's the capabilities they're going to ensure that we're, we're adaptable to whatever the future brings. That's interesting. And, you know, one of the things you talked about was the ability uh, across cultures yeah. for everybody to, you know, get along. And, and with COVID in the same time frame, we've, we've dealt with a lot of other social, uh, social phenomenon that, you know, we've had the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had a lot of social justice discussions. Um, and from hearing you speak before, I know that inclusion is a really important part of your vision uh, for the UL system. And I was wondering, maybe you could tell us a little bit about an initiatives that you might have with that. So, so we, uh, inclusion and diversity are, are, are concepts we've embraced now for the last uh, three years. Of course, we've always embraced them, but, but it's really been purposeful the last three years, mostly because, uh, it, well, two reasons. One, and, and I subscribe to the, to the moral aspects of that. I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, but but if, 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 if you don't subscribe to that, you have to understand there's a business imperative because if you're serving a diverse clientele and your business is dependent upon them, you better understand the issues 
that are affecting their ability to be part of your organization. So if you don't subscribe to the, the social justice piece, understand the business imperative associated with it. And when the two of those things come together, that's a powerful uh, moderating force for you to, to take into account. So we've launched a, 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 a system-wide effort around diversity and inclusion. We call it the, the Reginald F. Lewis uh, Educational Equity Initiative. And Reginald F. Lewis was uh, an African-American entrepreneur in, who grew up in Baltimore. Uh, he went to Harvard Law School. Uh, in the late 80s, he led a $1 billion leveraged buyout of Beatrice Foods. Uh, it was the first time that, that no one was even thinking about leveraged buyouts. Uh, he's just, he's a remarkable example of someone that was able to accomplish a lot as an individual, create a model for others to follow of, of ethical, of visionary leadership in business. And uh, his, his widow, Lloyda Lewis, and I became very, very close friends. She came down and visited with our entire system at a system-wide conference. And she says, I would be honored for you to use Reginald F. Lewis uh, as the namesake of your efforts. And it encompasses our total efforts. And in, in, in one, being more inclusive in our environment, but two, driving the, the talent development amongst populations that have long been underserved in Louisiana. I think that's going to be essential to our future. And it's, it's something I just, I've, I've gotten a lot of, 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 of extrinsic, intrinsic reward from. That's great. And I love to have a, a story behind that name. So that, yeah. that's wonderful, wonderful to learn about. So the last question that I really want to get to before we wrap up is, what do you need? Like, what is it that if Elevate Louisiana or the, all the civic leaders around the state could all band together behind one thing that higher education truly needs to reach its goals, what would that be? And it doesn't have to be just one, but. Yeah, so I think it's, it's multifaceted. One, one, we have to invest in higher education. And, and, and that's, a, you know, that's a tough thing because I know legislators and, and governments are faced with the scarcity equation. They have unlimited demands on very limited resources. And, and I don't mean that we need to just stuff a bunch of money in at a nebulous problem and think we're gonna solve it. But we do need to look at how we're investing in higher education and how we're prioritizing higher education amongst the, all of our investments. But resources are just part of it. Uh, the more important piece is to ensure that we've got the system of accountability that drives performance in our organization. And I'm not talking about accountability to process. In, in, in Louisiana and in most governments, we have layers of bureaucracy that serve as, as those measures of accountability, but they're, again, it's about process. We need to invest in accountability for outcomes, right? What is it that we're doing that's really driving metrics? And it's not just about graduation rates, it's about uh, growing the economy. What have we done to, in, to elevate those that are at the bottom of the socioeconomic uh, strata and moving them forward, right? Giving them upward mobility. What are we doing for the employer community to say that, you know what, we've got a productive workforce that gives us a competitive advantage in Louisiana. Those are outcomes, right? That's what's gonna drive economic growth in this state. That's what's going to uh, make our resource constraints disappear because there's two ways to, 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 to address resource constraints, take more from the economy or grow the economy. And I'm one that's about growth. I, I remember I was enamored of Jack Kemp back in the, in the 80s, right? when he was talking about 8% GDP growth. Well, people thought he was a lunatic for that. 
and maybe he was, because I'm not an economist, but it certainly grabbed my attention that growth is such a, a solution to so many of the ills we've got. And if we focus on growth rather than retrenchment, I think that's what's going to empower us. That's got to be the, 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 the culture in higher education, certainly the culture we try to instill in, in the University of Louisiana system. And then if you can have targeted investments to help support that growth, I think that you'll un unleash a talent development enterprise that will be the envy of the country. Well, and I guess the question is how, you know, is there any particular like piece of legislation or anything that you see on the horizon that you need support for? So we, uh, uh, autonomy is important. Uh, we are, uh, we get about $230 million of the UL system uh, from the state of Louisiana, mm -hmm. uh, but we're a $1.3 billion enterprise. So for that 18 to 20% of our resource that comes from public coffers, we probably spend uh, 60 to 70% of our time associated with dealing with administrivia as a result of that. You know, <laughs> so can you imagine if they said, you know what, we realize you're a self-supporting enterprise, we're going to target these investments to those fixed costs that you have, right? And so that's the piece that we just take that off of the books, right? We get that there. And then give us the autonomy with some, with the controls, again, associated with outcomes that allow us to operate as an enterprise, right? Operate like what you do in the free market. Everyone wants to say you ought to operate more as a business. Well, if a business had to deal with, and I'm not bashing legislative auditors, I love legislative auditors but I don't know that I need an auditor on my campus 10 months out of the year looking at every aspect of the operation. That's not what you, the way that you do business, right? Uh, so, to, so create a structure that allows us to be accountable for our outcomes and, and, and empowered to lead our process. Well, yeah, and I know part of that autonomy is tuition. I mean, uh, is tuition setting autonomy. And I, I remember that we're the only state in the entire United States there's a that, that it depends on who you ask that, that, that we require two thirds vote from both houses to do a tuition increase. And I believe we're the only state that that, that requires that most states have oversight uh, of some form or fashion. And, and that's that's important. That's important. But uh, and, and you certainly don't want uh, higher ed enterprises, higher ed institutions using tuition uh, increases as an excuse to be uh, inefficient. Right. And, and I think you've seen examples of that uh, across the country. So if you could give us that autonomy, pricing autonomy, the ability to price to the market, uh, that means increases, that means decreases. You know, I, we've got college campuses. I remember when I was in Bossier Parish Community College, uh, we were full from six o'clock in the morning until one o'clock in the afternoon. And we were full from 5.30 in the evening until 10 o'clock at night. I looked at that middle part of the day and thought we could fill this place up again if I had the authority to reduce tuition. Mm. By fifty percent. So you can't. Authority. You no. can't. You can't raise it or reduce it. No, 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 no. What a bureaucratic nightmare that is, right? Yeah. So the ability to price to the market would be would be great, but also just the ability to 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 do uh, uh, to go into the market to to mitigate risk, right, with insurance or to uh, to work collaboratively across our enterprise and across state lines on on procurements. Uh, I think there's a number of autonomies that could come. Uh, that allow us again to 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 quit wasting time on the administrivia and focus on uh, our talent development and research. And I'm talking about relevant, applicable research 
that, that drives our economy. And I'm talking about research like that developed the technology they're using now, created at, at Louisiana Tech, non-destructive technology to bring fiber from a roadside to an end user in a classroom. Louisiana Tech did that. Uh, the, 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 the research that occurred at ULM that found the antibiotic qualities, uh, the, the, the dementia fighting qualities of olive oil and how you can extract those components from olive oil that's now spun off into a new business that's in Northwest Louisiana that's actually doing that kind of work. Those are the things that, that, that the benefits of higher education, if we could spend more time on that instead of process, we'll be in a much better place. Well, we'll have an opportunity to talk about that because yeah. on August 28th, when we have our interactive webinar, we'll have our civic leaders from around the state and you'll be on a panel with Kim Hunter-Reed, who's in charge of the Board of Regents right now. Okay. And uh, we can have a lively discussion about those things and, and that's kind of what we're hoping. Um, so uh, that's about all the time we have for today. But um, I wanna thank our guest, Dr. Henderson. Oh. Um, you, you're always a very interesting person to speak to and I think motivational in a lot of ways because there's a very, uh, there's a place that we should be aiming in Louisiana and I appreciate leaders that are aimed there and I think you're one of them. So I appreciate that. Born in Louisiana, I love our state and, 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 and listen, I'm so grateful that, that people like you step up and put your yourself in a place to, to give a voice to needed change. You did that in the legislature. I thought you were always a, a voice of reason, but also one that challenged those around you to think bigger and to think better. Uh, we need more of that. I see elements of that even in the new legislature. You know, sometimes we always talk about the ideological divides or the partisan divides. There's a lot of thinkers over there. And, and the more we can empower thinkers, right, and, and engage thinkers in this process, uh, the better we're going to be. And, and you're certainly a thinker and, and a leader in your own right. And, and just appreciate you stepping up to do this kind of work. Well, thank you. We, uh, we need to bring back thinking. Yeah, <laughs> it's that, like huh? Bringing back thinking. So um, logic, a little logic and, um, you know, comparing other states and that's trying right. to come up with a solution that'll really move us ahead. And that's, that's what we're about at Elevate. So if you liked what I did, I got 50 other women just like me that, that want to make a difference. And uh, hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have 150 women like that that want to make a difference. Um, so if you're interested in joining Elevate Louisiana and want to be part of the larger interactive webinar on August 28th, please contact us through social media on Facebook at, at Elevate Louisiana. That's E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E-L-A all one word. Remember, there's two L's in Elevate because we're a group of females that want to make a difference. Um, you can also email us at elevatelaw at stokesflame.com. Again, that's E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E-L-A at stokesflame, S-T-O-K-E-S-F-L-A-M-E.com. And in August 21st, I'm sorry, on August 1st, in just a few weeks, we'll be launching our new website. So it'll make it easier to reach us. Wow. Um, but for now, don't forget to like Elevate Louisiana on all social media platforms. I'm your host, Julie Stokes, and see you next time.